Um, it says, church government officers. Um, we've been going through the doctrine of the church this fall, and this is the kind of the last official um, class on the doctrine of the church. Next week, we're going to still be talking about uh, the church, but we'll be talking about um, future directions of our specific church here at Covenant um, and talking about church planting and um, how we can apply, actually, some of the things we've been learning in this class. So one of the burdens in this class, um, I hope you've picked up on this, is I want to give you all a high view of the church. I want you to think of the church not as this kind of like little bonus thing on the side. Um, you know, what really matters is your relationship with Jesus, but oh yeah, there's this nice thing over here on the side, the church. It's good if you have it, but really pretty optional. Um, in contrast to that, which is more or less the view of most of evangelicalism in the United States, um, I'm wanting us to have a very high view of the church. And of course, Jesus and our relationship with him is preeminent, in, and it is the most essential. But if you're one with Jesus, that means you're also going to be one with his people. And if you're one with his people, that's more than just sort of this ethereal thing that just sort of happens and it's this mystical reality. No, it's an actual visible reality. Um, and I hope you've started to see just how visible the church is meant to be. Um, God raises up specific local congregations that come together like we are right now for instruction and for worship. And we work together as a local congregation to manifest the love of God for each other and uh, the love, love of God and love for each other. Um, and so we've talked a lot about these specifics. Now we're going to talk about um, and one more specific area, which is how God governs his church through officers. How God governs his church through officers. And to talk about this and talk about officers of the church, you have to talk about ordination, because everybody who's an officer is ordained. Um, the ordination is not just for the pastor. A elder is ordained. A deacon is ordained. What is ordination? Well, it's when a member is publicly set apart for a particular office in the church. And we have lots of stories of ordination in the Bible. Um, you have, uh, you know, Paul and Barnabas being consecrated, set apart for their mission. We have... Um, in Timothy, 1 Timothy talks about the laying on of hands of the presbytery or of the body of elders. It's a disputed word, what, what that word means in Greek. But people consecrating somebody and saying, you are now set apart for a special work in the church. And it's a public thing. It's somebody publicly being recognized by the whole church. This person has a special role to play. And there are lots of benefits of this. Um, it protects the offices from unworthy people. You can't just sort of claim to be a minister. Um, maybe you've seen, um, you know, these really kind of hokey things online where if you want to be the, a minister, you could just fill out this form, pay a fee, <laughs> and you get to be a minister. Um, and able to do like weddings and stuff. Um, 
No. <laughs> no, we, we want to say that these offices mean something. Um, and we're going to talk about what they mean in a moment. But you can't just claim to be one of these things. You can't just claim to be an overseer uh, by the force of your charismatic personality. No, you, you have to be recognized by the church of Jesus. And that fact that it's something that is given to you, it's bequeathed to you, means that then you're accountable. You're accountable to those who ordained you. Um, if you forsake the standards of that office, again, standards we'll talk about in a moment, um, if you don't live up to those standards and you know it's a severe matter, you can be removed from that office, right? Um, you, you, can, you can lose the privilege of serving in that capacity because you're held accountable. In fact, I think this idea of accountability for a special role that you're playing in the church is the whole big idea of ordination. The, the word ordain, um, I mean, you could kind of say it exists in Scripture in the sense that there are um, Greek words that correspond to the idea of, like, setting somebody apart. But, you know, the way we use the ord word ordain in, in the very technical sense of setting apart publicly for this particular office, um, you know, it's hard to say whether that word really exists. But the concept is there. People are being recognized formally for a particular role and then held accountable for it. Ordination is a biblical concept. And this gives us, here's one other benefit, clarity about who the leaders are in a given church, right? So it's not just the force of, like, how influential somebody is. No, there are actual people who, remember how we talked about with membership, um, Hebrews 13, 17, um, you know, honor your leaders as those who will have to give an account, right? So one day, every elder, every pastor, every deacon will have to answer to Jesus for how they served and whether they were faithful. Just like every husband and every mother and father will have to answer for their leadership capacities um, or, you know, political leaders too. So um, here's just the biblical argument for ordination. Uh, first, that the Bible talks about these roles as special. And we'll talk about which, which role, roles are ordained offices in a moment. Um, it talks about these roles, and it talks about them as being part of Jesus' plan. This is not just sort of a pragmatic thing. This is something where Jesus commissions specific people to be apostles. And then those apostles give specific instruction, appoint elders, Titus 1. Um, First Timothy says, I'm writing to you so everybody will know how to operate in the church of Jesus Christ, which is the pillar and support of the truth. And so the early church is doing this. We see them commissioning men for office. And let's just look at a couple of these really quick. So um, Acts chapter 6, we're going to return to this when we talk about deacons in a moment. But there's um, the church growing, and um, there's a complaint that certain widows are being overlooked in the care that the church is giving to widows. And then the 12 say, look, 
if we were to have to care for all these concerns, we wouldn't be able, we would be neglecting the word of God and prayer. So, pick out these people who are faithful, who are full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. And then there's a specific list, Stephen, Philip, and so on. All of them specifically set apart for what we understand to be the office of deacon. And then we just keep going. And as they go along and they're planting churches, what are they doing? They're establishing elders and leaders in the church. Um, again, with specific lists of who is ordained. Acts 13.1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and now let me tell you about them. Barnabas, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, etc. Right? So these are specific people who are set apart for specific offices. And not just set apart by people um, in the church, but recognized also, that this goes part, part, hand in hand with it, that God has equipped them for the work. How do we know somebody is called to be a minister, elder, or deacon? Well, we see gifts in them that's consonant with that line of service, right? We give them a chance to serve in non-ordained capacities, um, you know, leading a Bible study or, um, you know, uh, other kinds of service like that. Um, and having seen those gifts on display, maybe they're kind of raw gifts or not very well cultivated or refined yet. Um, I think of the first time I taught Sunday school in my church way back when. And looking back, I kind of cringe. <laughs> but afterwards, there was this dear, older, godly man who had been um, a school teacher his whole life, and he said very simply afterwards, thanks for the lesson. I think you have gifts for teaching. And I was like, what? He could say that after all the stuff I messed up? <laughs> like, wow. And that encouraged me, right? And so God gives the gifts, and those gifts then are recognized by the church. And so we say, God has set them apart. And um, Ephesians 4 is really important here too. This, these gifts are a direct result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, he ascended on high. He led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. This is Ephesians 4, 8. And then look down in verse 11. What's the direct result of these gifts to men? Offices. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Right? So gifts from Jesus, who was raised from the dead and is pouring out his spirit on his church, lead to specific roles, specific offices. Now, of course, some gifts don't necessarily lead to serving in special office, like gift of hospitality, gift of administration, or of um, all kinds of wonderful other kinds of gifts. But there are certain things that lead to these specific roles. And again, another thing that's key to ordination is not just that you have the gifts, not just that you're recognized, but you are accountable. So only certain people can be ordained. We'll look at these criteria. First uh, Timothy 3, Titus 1. And then as the as the people of God see, oh, this person has this, this criteria, they match the criteria, then they set them apart 
for the office, and having been set apart, they then derived their authority from the church as a whole. So think about this. To whom does Jesus give the Great Commission? Anybody? To whom does Jesus give the Great Commission? Yes, the entire church, right? But who then is going to be doing each of those individual acts? Well, not everybody is going to be baptizing, right? Not everybody is going to be doing the public teaching, you know, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Um, those, those, the same thing with the keys of the kingdom. God gives the keys of the kingdom to the church as a whole, but then those keys are exercised. You know, who's to be permitted to be a member? Who's, who needs to be removed from the membership of the church because they're not repent, uh, repenting of their sin? Well, certain, this is, you know, going back to a certain, uh, to, to previous Sunday school, but certain people are making those decisions. The leaders who are accountable for those decisions are making those decisions. So um, the church as a whole has all these gifts and power and authority that derives directly from Jesus and from the Holy Spirit. But then those specific um, actions are actually carried out by particular people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Every every body has members that perform specific roles. And it's it's the whole body in a sense that's doing those things, right? The entire church is in a sense seeing these sacraments come about and these um you know, when we do the sacraments together, who's doing it? All of us, right? But within the, the act of the sacrament, there are certain ones who are distributing it. And yeah, yeah, the body analogy is really important for this. Okay, so does everybody understand what we mean when we talk about ordination? Any questions on what is ordination? Yeah, Doug? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, great question. So what do we do with like kind of non-denominational church planter? Um, I think we can still say that if you have a body of Christians who is preaching the word, doing the sacraments, and has some kind of discipline where there's, there's a, there's, you know, membership and discipline, right? We can call that a true church, right? And if that true church is recognizing this particular guy as their leader and setting him apart and saying, we want you to preach the word of God to us. We, we see you as equipped to do this. And we can recognize that person, however informally the whole thing may have come about and however many like reservations we may have about, okay, so how much how much accountability does this guy really have, right? We can still recognize that person, I think, as ordained, right? Exactly. Yeah, there's some process whereby if he no longer is a man of God, the character is no longer preaching the gospel, that he can be ordained, uh, that he can be removed from his ordination, then I think that is what we're talking about. That is the basic concept. 
Uh, would we want to have better authority and maybe better um, uh, accountability, and a, a more thorough vetting process, uh, more thorough training? Maybe, <laughs> right? Um, but I think that as long as those basic things are in place, that is ordination, right? That is what we're talking about. Yeah, Anna. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, great, great question. So the question is, when you have a situation where there's kind of a low view of special office, um, or you could say a very high view of general office, right, of everybody's office as a Christian, um, and you have, for example, parents or um, baptizing their kids, are those, is that actually a baptism because it's not carried out by a minister? And I, I think that's a really, it's a challenging um, kind of boundary situation. I think if it were like um, a parent saying um, in, you know, kind of the privacy of their home or something like this, um, you're a Christian, so here at bath time, we're going to baptize you and, you know, say the baptismal formula, put water on the kid, right? Um, that would be something that would be different, I think, from in a public worship service with the ministers and elders all present and having like vetted this, this person and saying, we approve of this, um, a parent then doing the, the water baptism. Um, in that case, it's still irregular, I think, because um, as I'll argue in a moment, I think the, the exercise of the seals, the, the actual doing of the seals of the kingdom belong to the officers of the kingdom. But, in that case, I, I'd be hard-pressed to say that that person isn't truly baptized, right? Because there's still the exercise of the authority. Exactly. Exactly right. We approve of this, and um, this is a public thing. This person is being publicly marked with water in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, again, you know, are there issues? Yeah, but... Part of what we're trying to do is maximize unity, right? Um, and to what extent can we, how far can we, you know, extend the bridge, you know, and, and you know, offer the olive branch to people of different persuasions, right? To maximize unity. Great question, yeah. Well, let's look at some of the specific offices God has appointed. Uh, there are these foundational offices, and then there are these ongoing offices. And we should say, too, that in the Old Covenant, there are other offices as well, the office of king, uh, of prophet, of priest, and others as well, judge. But um, for the New Testament people of God, there are at least 
these four offices, apostle, prophet, elder, and deacon, but only elder and deacon continue to the present day. The rest, the first two, apostles and prophet, are foundational offices. So what is an apostle? Well, let's look at Acts chapter 1. When Judas had betrayed Jesus and committed suicide, they only had 11 apostles. And so, they're praying about this and remembering the scriptures about what's to happen to the betrayer of the Christ, that another should take his office. And it says in verse 21, So one of the men who have accompanied us, Peter talking here, during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they appoint Matthias. What's the criteria? He's been with us. Yeah, and directly with Jesus the whole time and is an eyewitness of his death and of his resurrection. Um, Paul is sort of an outlier in this. He says he's one untimely born, but <clears throat> he shares with the apostles this category of being someone who has directly seen the Lord Jesus and has received directly from the Lord Jesus the revelation that he's now preaching. So look at Galatians 1, verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, all of us, we were all taught by somebody else, another human being, the faith. Even if you're one of these extraordinary Christians who didn't have somebody who discipled them, but just opened the Bible and um, in reading the Bible became a Christian, you're still taught by the apostles who wrote the Bible, right? Not so in the case of the apostles. The apostles are the direct recipients of revelation from Jesus and who then distribute that revelation to others. And they are sent out to establish churches. In fact, the word apostle comes from the Greek word apostello, which means to send out. Who has sent out the apostles directly from Jesus the King? He has sent them out to make disciples and lay the foundation of the church. And then alongside of these apostles are these men prophets. And usually when we think of prophets, we think of, um, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, these Old Testament special people, most of whom wrote biblical books that we're familiar with. But there are actually many New Testament era prophets. We just don't often think about them. So look at Ephesians 3, 5. Um, we can start in verse 4, um, Ephesians 3, 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which has, was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What's been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit?
the mystery of Christ, yes? And it's a mystery that has being, it's being revealed now that has not, in a way that has not been revealed in previous generations. So did the pre first prophets, uh, you know, the Old Testament prophets, did they reveal the mystery of Christ? Yes, First uh, Peter 1, 10 through 12, um, they were um, having disclosed to them Jesus Christ, things into which angels long to look. Remember that passage, right? They're also speaking about Jesus, but now in a new and more awesome way, the mystery of Christ is being revealed by um, the apostles and prophets. And what are these prophets doing? Well, I think the clearest example is in Acts 15, 32, where it says, Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And if you recall, in 1 Corinthians, there's all this stuff about speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians 14. And he says, it's so important that if there is any speaking in tongues, that it needs to be translated, why? Anybody remember? That's right. So people can understand and the church can be built up. These offices, these special gifts of apostleship, prophecy, tongues. They are for the building up of the church. So if the church isn't being built up, then they're not, their, prophets, their, their, their office is being misused, right? So imagine this for a second. How many apostles are there? Well, 12 plus one, right? Um, the 12 uh, who, who were with Jesus and then Paul, right? Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Um, how many churches are there in the early church? More than 13. <laughs> a lot, right? Are you always going to have a prophet? Are you guys always going to have an apostle in town? No. What do we do in the meantime? While the New Testament is being, New Testament is being written, well, God raises up these prophets who are building and encouraging. What does it say here about Judas and... Uh, uh, Silas, encouraging and strengthening the brothers with many words. Okay, so in this special foundation-laying phase, God does not leave his people without revelation, without knowledge of Christ. Um, Christ has come. There's been that great event. But now that event needs to be interpreted. And the interpretation is given through the word and God does not leave his people without a word. What happens once the New Testament is written? Well, Ephesians 2.20 tells us. Ephesians 2.20 talks about, well, we can verse, start in verse 19. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And then he's got this building metaphor. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So what's the foundation of the church? What's, the, what's it comprised of? Apostles and prophets with Jesus being the cornerstone. So you understand, uh, cornerstone is the starting point of, a constru of ancient construction. There's this really perfectly square or you know, rectangular stone. And however that's laid, all the other stones now need to go in line with that founding cornerstone, 
right? So Jesus is the cornerstone. He determines the trajectory of everything that we're going to see in the scriptures. Who then forms the rest of that foundation? The apostles and prophets. Which prophets are in view? New Testament prophets, right? Um, as the context makes clear in 3.5. So here's the foundation, Jesus and the apostles and prophets. Um, how many times do we lay a foundation? Once, right? What do we put on top of the foundation? Well, the, the rest of the structure is built up on top of that. So part of how we, this is, this is an argument for what's called cessationism, although I was just talking with a friend of mine um, this week, and uh, he brought up that really shouldn't think of it as like cessationism, um, thinking of something as having, um, the emphasis isn't so much on what has stopped as it is that something has been completely finished. Um, what's been finished? God giving once for all the deposit of revelation that the saints are going to need. Jesus has given to us, in, it says in Jude, the faith once for all given to the saints. That faith, there's nothing more to be added. Like, um, in a sense, again, this is my friend who said this, uh, uh, sort of puts a point on it. God said everything he wants to say in the New Testament. Um, does that mean that the implications of this are still to be unfolded today? Yes. There's still much more that God is still speaking right, today through the New Testament. But it, it, does he have anything more to say that's going to form that deposit revelation that's going to, you know, fill out and build the church for the rest of, the, of this epoch? No, he's given it. And that's why we don't need more apostles or more prophets. No further revelational offices are necessary. Any questions on this? Because this is a controversial thing in our time. Should we expect special revelations? Yes, go ahead. Yep. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so when we hear the word prophet, what most people think is a foreteller. But ever since the beginning of prophecy um, in, in the Old Testament, the vast majority of what they're saying is forthtelling, not foretelling. They're explaining what God is doing in this present situation. They're challenging people on their sin. Now, there's still definitely foretelling in the Old Testament prophets. Um, in fact, that's part of how God demonstrates his unique glory over against the gods of the nations, right? Isaiah 40 through 55 is filled with this sort of thing. Um, I am the true God. Here's how you know it. I, I say what comes to pass before it's come to pass, right? Even naming Cyrus by name. Um, and same thing with like Agabus and late in Acts, how he binds himself and says to Paul, this is how you will be bound, right? Um, and taken where you do not want to go. So there is that foretelling element. But yeah, most of it is forthtelling. Here's what Jesus has done. And now believe that, right? And now that's what exactly what we're doing here. And I'm actually sometimes telling you about the future too. Um, whenever we're talking about texts that are promising things yet to come, I'm telling you, here's what God has prophesied, right? Um, but obviously I'm not adding anything 
that hasn't already been given, and that's the key idea. Yeah, any other thoughts about this idea of cessationism or what's involved here? Yeah. Yeah, it's like a very exalted title, apostle, yeah. Yeah, and that sort of vague sense of the word apostle actually appears in the Bible as well. I'm trying to remember some specifics here, but I believe like Barnabas is called an apostle, and yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think there is another um, somewhere, uh, I'm trying to remember, um, it's I think somewhere in Romans 16, um, I might be forgetting it, but um, but yeah, I think, I think if we want to talk about somebody who's sent out, um, and we want to call them an apostle in the sort of vague sense of the word, I, I don't think that that necessarily goes against the scripture. Um, I'm trying to use the word in the technical sense that it's come to occupy, which is, this very special once-for-all thing, the eyewitnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection. And I think that when you start to use the same word for other things, then you start to get into these really difficult situations where people start to claim authority as an apostle that they have no business claiming to be, you know, having special revelatory insight. And all of a sudden now we're starting to get away from the word and distracted from the word and that, to me, is the grave danger of continuationism. Not all continuationist churches are like this. Some, some continuationist churches are very jealous for the scriptures, and they have a very like, carefully bounded understanding of how, how prophecy can continue to happen that is trying to safeguard the specialness of the Bible. But even so, I just don't see us having any reason to expect that there will be ongoing Revelation when we read Ephesians 2.20. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right, right, yeah. Sometimes we want the, the Bible to teach with, uh, to speak with very technical vocabulary that it just simply isn't interested in doing, right? And so, you know, it'll say overseer, and in the next sentence will say elder, 
right? Um, that's in Acts 20 and in um, Titus 1. And we now we, and so we realize, oh, it's talking about the same person, but with two different names. Um, so yeah, when this ongoing offices that I have here, these come by different names. Shepherd is one of them. In fact, pastor is just another, it's just the Latin word for um, shepherd. Uh, we're, we are shepherds of the flock who rule, care, and teach. But I'm using the word elder here because um, that also is used in Scripture. And there's some debate, even in uh, reform circles, are, are there actually three ongoing offices, minister, elder, deacon? I'm setting before you what, what's called the two-and-a-half office view, um, that basically there are two core offices, elder and deacon, that continue. And within those two core offices, and within the, within the elder office, there are two kinds, the ruling elder and the teaching elder. And we see this in 1 Timothy 5. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So both kinds of elders are ruling, but then there are certain elders who labor in preaching and teaching, what we would call a pastor or a minister. Um, and so these ongoing offices are, are still going on today, right? These are what God is raising up today to keep his church going. There's a word-centered office, elder, and, then there, and, and rule-centered, and then there's um, a care shepherd or, or um, deed-centered office, which we call deacon. Um, just like it says in Acts 1, all that Jesus began to do and to teach, right? In the, in the Gospel of Luke, now he's going to continue doing and teaching. So also this doing and teaching, which is the two basic things of what Jesus is doing in this present age, are being continued now through two sets of leaders, the elders leading us particularly in the teaching aspect of the Word of God and the deacons leading us in our service, um, expressing Christ's love. So um, any question about these ongoing offices in the church? Yeah, Doug? Yeah. Yeah, great question. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so like in Ephesians 4, he's listing all these different offices, right? And he's got apostles, prophets. Okay, check, check. And then he says, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers who are, it says here, all equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Um, and so the way we've, we've understood, the way the OPC understands this, and I think, I think it makes good sense, is that all three of those are doing essentially the same thing, propagating the word of God, but in different ways, right? So the evangelist is taking the word of God new places where it's never gone before. Pastors are those who are shepherding the flock in a local congregation. Teachers are particularly those focused on imparting the knowledge of the truth um, in different contexts. So we think of Paul particularly focusing on teaching at the school of Tyrannus in Ephesus, right? Um, and so what we've, what we've done is we said basically all three of those are different kinds of ministers. They're different kinds of the teaching elder office. And so we still ordain people to the office of evangelists. So <laughs> Pastor Montgomery is now ordained as an evangelist. Pastor uh, Pepo was ordained as an evangelist. Why? Because his particular office is to take the gospel new places. 
Um, whenever we ordain a missionary to go overseas, they're ordained as an evangelist. Um, so it's very much an ongoing office because there's still a lot of places that needs the light of God's word, right? And so it's like the particular focus of their ministry. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, so like a seminary professor, what is, what is the bulk of his time occupied with? Well, not the shepherding care of a flock, but particularly equipping future pastors. Should that man be accountable for his teaching of the word of God? Uh-huh. He's like forming the future generation of gospel ministers. If he's not held accountable for the word of God and he starts teaching bad stuff, we're going to have a whole generation of pastors going to be really confused, right? And so that guy who's teaching the word, maybe not in a like churchly context, maybe it's in a school that's helping the church, like a seminary, he still needs to be held accountable for his teaching and therefore should be ordained, yeah. He is ordained, that's right. As a professor, yeah, so he's ordained as a teacher serving as a professor, yeah, that's right, that's exactly right. And it's so important that that accountability be there, yeah. He's, he's held accountable to the presbytery um, who, or, who examine him and make sure that he's going to teach sound doctrine. Yes. And if any complaint arises about his teaching, it's first of all going before his presbytery. And his presbytery has the authority to then say, we hereby suspend you from the office of teaching until you've repented of this false teaching. <laughs> right? Um, and so... It's not, I mean, the seminary also has a, has a role in all of this where they need to be keeping their eyes on the ground because they're, you know, have local, you know, interactions with this guy. <laughs> but it's the church. It should, to whom has the, has the oracles of God been entrusted? It's not a university. It's not a school. It's not a seminary. The oracles of God have been entrusted to the church of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's what we're going to see here in a moment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so when a denomination has their own seminary, they'll, the church will appoint, yeah, um, who will teach at that. That makes a lot of sense. So who should, who should have these offices? Who, who is qualified? Well, all offices require godly character and a true understanding of the faith. And you read those descriptions in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. The vast bulk of those passages are character stuff, right? Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, not violent, etc., and it must be mature character. So 1 Timothy 5 says, don't be hasting in the laying on of hands. Like, you really want to make sure this person, and it says, not as somebody who's young in the faith, right? Um, you don't, don't want to just say, oh, this person's really excited about the Bible, and he's really gifted at sharing, sharing about the Bible. Let's put him in this special position. No, no, he needs to, there needs to be a solid trajectory, not of perfection, who's perfect, right? But of solid character. And yet, we also need to know the gospel really well 
and be able to teach it, especially elders need to be able to teach the gospel and to fight falsehood. It's really important when we say elders as a whole. Who's holding me accountable for what I'm teaching up here? Who's the person who's supposed to wave the red flag when I'm saying something that's wrong? The elders, right? Um, They're the ones who, along with the ministers, have a formal say at Presbytery as to whether so-and-so should be ordained or not. And it's just so important that you know that we're, we're trying to be really careful with who goes into these offices, not in the sense of putting the bar impossibly high, but because there's so much writing on this, right? And so we, we, we have a very thorough vetting process, both for elders, ministers, and deacons. They all have to be trained. First, they're nominated by you, recognized by the church as having gifts, then they're trained, and then there's a big, long interview for elders and deacons. It's at the session level for ministers. It's at the presbytery level where they are grilled in all aspect of not just theology, but also life, asking the hard questions, right? And only then um, would an elder or deacon be put before you for a vote. So this thorough vetting process is us really trying hard to guard these offices so that you're, as a flock, protected. So here's a million-dollar question that um, is perfectly acceptable for four minutes remaining in Sunday school. <laughs> Why don't we ordain women? What, what's the, uh, you know, when we talk about who is qualified, um, why wouldn't we ordain women? After all, women are fellow image bearers. Um, Women are capable of extremely godly character, um, just, as, just as much as men. Um, all these things that we see in here, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, everything. Um, even things like able to teach are, are, are women, um, many of them, extremely intelligent and extremely articulate people. Absolutely. Um, and so... You know, what, what is going on in, in a denomination then, such as ours, where the offices of rule and of teaching and also of um, deacons is limited only to women? Well, it's, it's not um, because of this sort of like hidden misogyny, right? This idea that um, women are somehow inferior to men. It's, it's uh, unfortunately one of the first accusations out of anybody's mouth whenever they hear this, right? It's like, oh, um, you guys are stuck in the dark ages. <laughs> you guys have clearly not, uh, clearly been blind to all the, uh, all the advancements that have been made uh, in, the, in the 20th century. Well, um, we're just trying to be true to what God has showed us in his word. Um, and here are a few, few points which can lead to further discussion if you wish later. But first is that Jesus, who I think we would want to say has a high view of women, in fact, an extraordinary high view, extraordinarily high view of women, um, at the same time appointed only a male, a male-only set of apostles. And all the office holders in the New Testament are male, with the possible exception of Phoebe, who's called a diakonos, which is the Greek word for deacon, but it's also the Greek word for just servant, just a generic word for servant. So it's just not clear in her case 
um, whether she's being called a deacon or not. <coughs> but um, that's a pretty significant data point, right? That the apostles that we would respect as being people who are really in touch with God's will are only ordaining, as far as we can tell, um, men to the office of elder and deacon. All of those deacons, right, in Acts chapter 6, were all men. And then we have clear teaching in 1 Corinthians 14, 34. Um, and 1 Timothy 2. Um, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And the, uh, you know, this is one of those, like, verses that, like, everybody's really excited to read in the present age. It's just a really challenging, challenging verse. Likewise, 1 Timothy 2. Um, talking about um, women adorning themselves in respectable ways with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Both of these texts are filled with all kinds of like big questions. How do you explain these verses? Um, I'm not here to explain these verses, but I am here to point out something that's pretty obvious, that Paul is saying men are, these roles, these special teaching roles are limited to men, and that the reason is not cultural. The reason, I hope you realize, is creational. There's a difference in how God made men and women. And in this day and age, are we a little confused about this in our culture? Yes. So is there maybe a reason why these teachings now suddenly are hard for us to accept? I think so. But I think what we need to recognize is that God is not doing this because he has a low view of women. Rather, he has a high view of men as men and a high view of women as women in their own distinct, beautiful ways in which they image forth God. Do women image forth God in ways that men don't? Yes. And do men image forth God in ways that women don't? Yes. Do they therefore have distinct roles in the home? Right? Wives submit to your husbands. Husbands love your wives. Um, yes. Like, husbands are given greater strength so that then they can use that strength sacrificially to picture Jesus. Right? Women are life givers in a way that men never will be and nurturers in a way that men never will be. And that has corresponding correlations um, to the church. Now, I'm not here to answer all the questions, but I'm thankful that Kevin DeYoung is. So, <laughs> tongue-in-cheek there. But this is a great book, Men and Women in the Church, a short, biblical, practical introduction. If this is something that I'm sharing with you that's a struggle for you, where you feel like, it's really hard for me to believe the goodness of God as I'm hearing pastor read these passages. Well, I encourage you to read Kevin because um, he really does show how this is actually a really beautiful thing that God has constructed in the church. It's not meant to um, 
repress women or to squelch their gifts. Actually, it's to free them to glorify God with their gifts in the specific way that God made them as women. And likewise um, for men. Um, one of my hearts in this church, one of, my, one of my desires for this church is that everybody would feel completely free to use their gifts to the max for God's glory um, in a way that God has actually wired us to use those gifts. Um, and that, that's um, my heart as, I, as we talk about this. Any, any questions? I know we're a couple minutes past here, but um, any, any questions as we wrap up? Yeah. Yeah, even when what it says is unpopular, right? That's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so critical, having that humility. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we can get... That's right. Is, is, there, is there toxic masculinity in the church today? Absolutely. Does that mean that we don't, that we just throw out all these explicit teachings just because we don't like them? No. <laughs> we go with what God says and trust him. Um, well, I encourage you to come and talk to me if these are matters that really concern you, because um, I think there are encouragements we can give. But now, that, now we should close. Let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much um, for giving offices for your church. Thank you for loving us so much and equipping us. Um, and we pray that, Lord, we would be faithful to protect these offices. And we pray for each person who serves in these offices, that, Lord, you would help them to be faithful, to use their gifts for the building up of the body. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.